0: What are the true concerns the Five Eyes Alliance of Western countries have about the Chinese tech firm Huawei? What consequences could the arrest of Meng Wanzhou have on the future of Canada-China relations? How much of a role did Prime Minister Trudeau have in authorizing or preventing the arrest of Meng? What single move could China make that would convince the Americans to back off of their extradition request of the Huawei executive? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we examine the under-explored angles of a recent incident in Canada which is making international headlines and affecting international stock markets. We'll hear from Professor Michel Chosodovsky of the Centre for Research on Globalisation about the hostility toward Huawei and how that is leading to an international crisis. Then we'll hear from esteemed international criminal lawyer... Christopher Black about Canada's abandonment of its obligations with regard to the Meng Wanzhou incident. Finally, Palo Alto, California-based writer and editor Ron Unz of the Unz Review shares his thoughts about how one simple move by China could compel the release of Meng Wanzhou from Canadian custody. On this week's program, the real reason behind Canada's arrest of Chinese tech executive Meng Wanzhou. Bringing you the analysis beyond media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December twenty first, two thousand eighteen. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and Campus Community Radio Station CKUW ninety five point nine FM in Winnipeg, on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Hidatsa and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Canada is not Part of the JCPOA, but as a signatory to the United Nations, it is thereby agreeing to UN rules of law. By supporting the US, it stands outside the law, acting as a pawn in US attempts to control the world through illegal sanctions and illegal extraterritoriality proceedings. Not political, really? The other argument about it not being political is simply an outright lie a cover story in order to give a short answer to the media without admitting anything about Canada's subservience to U.S. extraterritoriality. There is everything political about the arrest as it concerns a high-level international executive, one related to China's central power structures, with the incredible description of it being because of Meng Wanzhou's business discussions going against U.S. illegal sanctions and U.S. abrogation of international law. Concerning Iran. That comes from the article Canada Serves the U.S. Empire Again and Again by Jim Miles, posted December 18th. Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, or CJPME, is encouraged to hear that the Trudeau government is looking for ways to stop exporting armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia. However, this news comes on the heels of last week's passage of Bill C-47, a highly flawed piece of legislation which purportedly has Canada accede to the International Arms Trade Treaty, or the ATT. For almost two years, CJPME, Amnesty International, Oxfam, Project Plowshares, the Rideau Institute, and other civil society organizations criticized Bill C-47 as falling short of the letter and spirit of the ATT. Yet when C-47 got royal consent last week, the concerns of civil society had been virtually ignored. While Trudeau is finally talking about limiting arms sales to Saudi Arabia, his government has just passed arms control legislation that will do nothing to limit future such sales, complained Thomas Woodley, president of CJPME. That comes from the article... Ottawa Sends Contradictory Messages on Arms Control by Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. Posted December 18th. Yellow Vest protesters mobilized for a fifth day of action in France on Saturday, facing a new police crackdown and clashes centered in provincial cities as fewer protesters traveled to Paris. The Interior Ministry claimed that some 66,000 people had protested across France, down by half after the brutal crackdown organized the previous week in Paris. The mobilization in the capital was certainly smaller this Saturday as thousands marched and clashed with police in large provincial cities across the country. In Paris, several thousand protested and 144 people were held in preventive detention amid a new massive police clampdown in the capital. Large parts of the city and subway system were shut down as armored cars, water cannon, horse-mounted military police and riot police firing rubber bullets and tear gas occupied much of the city. That comes from the article... Fifth French Yellow Vest Protest Opposes Macron Government, by Alex Lantier. Posted December 18th, originally posted at World Socialist website. The movement to boycott Israel, known as BDS, is growing on U.S. campuses, but vilified by Washington officials who claim its goal is to end Israel as a Jewish state by bringing about a single state in which all inhabitants would be equal. The U.S. Congress is even considering legislation to outlaw boycott activism. And last month, CNN sacked its commentator Mark Lamont Hill for using a speech at the United Nations to advocate a one state solution, a position endorsed by 35% of the U.S. public. There is every reason to assume that over time, these figures will swing even more sharply against Mr. Netanyahu's Greater Israel plans and against Washington's claims to be an honest broker. Among younger Americans, support for the one state climbs to 42%. That comes from the article, Growing U.S. Public Support for One State Shared Equally by Israelis and Palestinians Falls on Deaf Ears, by Jonathan Cook, posted December 17. (music) Merkel's wisdom in supporting the Iraq invasion has almost been forgotten. Moreover, her ministers were not heard complaining that it was unacceptable when the European Union, with German backing, imposed a variety of measures on Russia relating to the Western-initiated Ukraine conflict. Sanctions are only against international law, plain and simple, when it affects German business interests, one can assume. Merkel remained noticeably quiet as the U.S. performed a key role in the unlawful overthrowing of Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych in February 2014. She chose to stand by America's side once more, offering no opposition that might have affected her friendship with then U.S. President Barack Obama. That comes from the article, Western Leaders Have a History of Pandering to Washington's Whims, by Shane Quinn, posted December 15th. On Saturday, December 1st, Meng Wanzhou, Deputy Chairwoman of the Board and Chief Financial Officer of China's largest private company, telecom giant Huawei, was arrested at Vancouver International Airport. Canadian authorities said they were acting on an extradition request from the United States. The claim presented in British Columbia Supreme Court on December 7th was that Ms. Meng used a Huawei subsidiary, Skycom, to conduct business dealings with Iran and then misrepresented Skycom as a separate company. This would imply a violation of American sanctions on Iran. After 10 days in custody and three days of hearings, Ms. Meng was granted bail at a cost of $10 million, $7 million of which had to be paid in cash. Among the conditions, she would have to wear an electronic ankle bracelet 24 hours a day, 7 days a week and reside in a house owned by her husband, staying indoors between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m. She would have to surrender her passports and would be subjected to around-the-clock surveillance, which she would have to pay for. Meng is expected to appear in court on February 6th as part of an extradition process that could take months. Chinese officials are reportedly outraged by the detention of Meng, a very high-profile figure in China, as she is this daughter of Ren Zhengfei, a man viewed as a national hero in the world's most populous country. China has threatened revenge and unnecessary troubles for Canada if it did not release the Chinese CFO. China has since arrested three Canadian nationals. Huawei's advanced state-of-the-art technology innovations has been a focus of concern for Western and military intelligence agencies and is regarded by critics as the primary move behind the detention of Meng. The Five Eyes Alliance of Anglo-American countries, comprised of Canada, the U.S., the U.K., New Zealand, and Australia, are known to exchange intelligence on their own citizens within and among themselves. The Australian press noted an important meeting of the intelligence chiefs of the Five Eyes Alliance, along with Prime Minister Trudeau in an undisclosed location in Nova Scotia, Canada. The report noted the importance of the Anglo-American alliance to cripple Huawei regarding it as a security threat. If the campaign targeting Huawei and not violation of Iranian sanctions is the true motive behind the detention of Hmong, then what exactly is the concern about the tech company? And what are the consequences for relations between China and the U.S. and Canada? Joining me to discuss the situation is Michelle Chosodovsky. He's an award-winning author founder and director of the Centre for Research on Globalisation and editor of Global Research. He joined us by phone from his home near Montreal. Now, the Australian press a few days ago mentioned a meeting in July... Uh, 2018 involving the Prime Minister uh, Trudeau detailing a plan by the Five Eyes countries, namely Australia, the US, Canada, New Zealand, and the UK, to block Chinese tech giant Huawei from supplying equipment for their next generation wireless networks. Uh, officials and the press have framed their concerns as related to national security. They say that the, the, the security for officials have warned that uh, the Chinese company could be building spying capabilities into the equipment, essentially, uh, that it supplies and uh, could conduct intelligence on behalf of the Chinese government. Can I get you to comment on the, the legitimacy of those sorts of concerns?
1: Well, those statements, I think, uh, constitute a smokescreen. Um, in fact, uh, 70% of cell phones uh, worldwide are made in China. So we're not only dealing with, uh, with Chinese cell phones, we're dealing with Apple, uh, iPhones, and so on and so forth. Uh, but I, I think what is very important to underscore is this July 17 meeting in an unnamed resort in Nova Scotia which was reported by the Australian media a few days back, um, about a week ago, uh, which um, confirms that Prime Minister Trudeau met with the spy chiefs from the so-called Five Eyes Nations. Now, these Five Eyes Nations are essentially the Anglo-Saxon intelligence agencies, namely, uh, United States Canada Britain Australia New Zealand now I tried to to analyze uh, Canadian press reports uh, and in fact there's absolutely nothing in the Canadian media on um, on this meeting either either then because it was back in July or now uh, what I what we can gather from the Australian report is the following, and I, I'm trying to interpret it in a more substantive way because they tend to trivialize it. They, they say, well, Trudeau happened to join the chiefs for a dinner with, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it was a lobster dinner in Nova Scotia, but in fact it was a meeting of it was a carefully planned meeting between the, between the five intelligence um, chiefs and the Prime Minister of Canada, uh, and there were certain things which were discussed. Now, uh, let me just put it in perspective. On July 17, the spy chiefs from the Five Eyes uh, meet in Ottawa, um, and I think their, their main uh, discussions were in ottawa, and then they traveled to nova scotia for a so called dinner with lobster well that 's the story in the australian um, in the australian media but in effect, they traveled to nova scotia to meet up with Prime Minister Trudeau who was on a uh, a, a meeting Well, he was on a mission to Nova Scotia. He was meeting up with Premier Stephen McNeil and so on. Uh, and there were several reports on, on Trudeau's meetings in Nova Scotia, but there was absolutely no coverage of the secret meeting with the five chiefs. And there, presumably there were journalists accompanying Trudeau uh, during, during, those, during his mission to Nova Scotia. Now, <clears throat> What happened? Uh, Trudeau was uh, said to drop in on the gathering, um, and then uh, there was some indication in the Australian report as to what kind of of issue was to be discussed. And in fact, there were two main issues: they they discussed China, they discussed Russia, and the concern centered essentially on Huawei uh, and the Chinese telecoms role in supplying equipment for the next generation of wireless technology which is the 5G and uh, essentially my understanding is that this incident and other other um, elements of this campaign this intelligence campaign is ultimately to exclude uh, China from playing a key role in the 5G wireless network. And I should say that the reason for this is that China is actually ahead of the West in, uh, in wireless technology, both in terms of manufacturing but also in terms, in terms of intellectual property. So this is ultimately, as uh, a Canadian The public is not informed to that effect. The the objective uh, is to to, uh, curb China's influence in the telecom industry and its its leading role. Um, And uh, essentially what had been envisaged was partnership between uh, Huawei and various other major telecom companies. And that is some, something which in, is in the process of being, in effect, being uh, um, sabotaged.
0: Professor, so Joseph, that's
1: the background.
0: Okay, uh, I notice that. Uh, I mean, there there are uh, conceivably uh, two actual motivations, and, and I think separate motivations. One is the that economic dimension that uh, the five G and, and other IT coming out of this uh, the advanced uh, you know Chinese uh, technology companies. Uh, it, it's 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 competitive, uh, you know, economically, and uh, especially in this new horizon for capitalist expansion. But at the same time, another feature of Huawei phones, as I understand it, is that unlike Apple and and the Western competitors, the phones can't be hacked into. So this th- that separate motivation of military of Western military intelligence supremacy. Uh, it seems to me is different from the uh, that economic uh, trying to stay ahead economically could I, could I get you to comment on uh,
1: well you know as far as it goes there the, are the two dimensions of Huawei's role, first of all it produces cell phones uh, I've traveled, when I travel to Asia I see them all over the place okay? they're, they're, they're very very, and they're very good and they have certain features which which the which the iPhone doesn't have. Uh, And uh, I think that one of the agendas is to protect the cell phone markets in Western countries, not to let the Chinese come in and flood the cell phone markets at the expense, let's say, of iPhone. I think that definitely is the case. Now, I'm not so much familiar with the hacking issue, but uh, what I can say is, is that um, uh, China is leading in 5G technology. Now, I, I I'm not, don't want to make an apology for 5G technology because it's a devastating technology which affects human health and the environment. That's a separate issue. But what, what they're trying to do is to exclude uh, China from playing a key role uh, in that it's going to revolutionize communications. That's absolutely clear. 5G is it's the speed of transmission and so on. It's going to revolutionize communication, telephone, cell phones, television, and so on.
0: Okay. And it is
1: therefore very, very uh, strategic, both from a, let's say, political as well as economic
0: standpoint. Professor Chostodovsky, uh- could you, uh, you have extensive uh, uh, contacts in China. You visited China many times. Uh, you're, uh, I'm curious to know, uh, in, in your view, how significant is this incident in the history of Canada Chinese relations?
1: Well, there, there are two things. Uh, uh, let me, first of all, elaborate a little bit on the broader technological base of what's happening in China. China is developing electricity as a as a key uh, element in its uh, its whole uh, structure of of energy and production. Uh, and they're very advanced battery technology. They, they're not. We're not dealing with small batteries. We're dealing with batteries which are about one kil- kilometer wide. Uh, with mega, it's, these are mega batteries using vanadium which is a strategic metal, and China has the largest reserves of, of vanadium in the world. Uh, I, I mean, there's so many high-tech applications. Uh, there's the, the, the experience of the artificial moon that they're contemplating uh, with satellite technology, which would then replace street lighting at night in major urban areas, um, and so on. So. In in a sense, uh, it's not only Huawei, it's a whole uh, framework whereby China has really overshadowed the Western countries in terms of its technological development, its infrastructure, its high-speed trains, and so on and so forth. Uh, While we are under austerity measures, uh, our economies are are destabilized, and, and also, of course, uh, you know, it's the combined austerity measures uh, plus uh, defense expenditure of the United States is $750 billion uh, uh, dollars of, of defense expenditures, which ultimately has an impact on, on the civilian economy. So that, that's—I think that is the broader logic. And it's interesting that in August of—following uh, this secret meeting— uh, there was a report in, uh, in Fortune magazine, and it says textually, and I quote, China is winning the race against the United States to build a faster nationwide wireless network that uses 5G technology, uh, built as the mobile industry's future, and yet, unless the U.S. moves more quickly it will be at a major disadvantage when it comes to creating dominant new companies in the emerging space. And, and then it concludes, uh, it says, accordingly, countries that adopt 5G first are expected to experience disproportionate gains in macroeconomic impacts. The vote is very clear. The, the United States wants to maintain its lead in the in the telecommunications industry, but it even it is not in a position to do it. Why? It has closed down its plants in Silicon Valley, in California. Uh, it has offshored all its production to China, but it has also delocated uh, its uh, intellectual property. In other words, it's relying on Chinese technology in many cases. Uh, to, to, uh, to build its, its, uh, its telecom uh, networks and so on. So we're in a very difficult, very serious crisis because the U.S. Econ- civilian economy is crumbling, both in terms of infrastructure, in terms of high-tech development. In, its manufacturing base has been wiped out through offshoring, through delocation. It doesn't produce the cell phones, that no cell phones are produced in the United States, and that uh, is the underlying threat, context.
0: Okay. Uh, Professor Chosodovsky, I I wanted to uh, bring up a a point that was raised by Colombian University Professor Jeffrey Sachs in uh, a recent uh, article in the Australian Financial Review in which he said, quote, if, as Mark Twain repeatedly said, history often rhymes, our era increasingly recalls the period preceding 1914. As with Europe's great powers back then, the United States, led by an administration intent on asserting America's dominance over China, is pushing the world towards disaster. So you know, maybe I could get a, a, a brief comment, well, thought I, about I, it. I,
1: I, I is mean, that over the
0: top, or do you think it has more? Well, I,
1: I, I mean, I, I don't like, I, the historical precedent may not be, uh, for, could be formulated differently, uh, but but uh, I don't think at this stage... Uh, I don't see the crumbling of the U.S. empire um, happening. But if it happens, of course, the, the, the consequences are of an entirely different nature because all this is tied into, into warfare. Now, the fact is that the Chinese, China has been threatened with military action by the United States for for many, many years. The whole South China Sea, East China Sea, all are militarized. Its western borders are militarized, et etc. et cetera. Yes, this is part of a much more serious global crisis. Um, but um, uh, but to get back to your earlier question on on Sino canadian relations, and that's very important for us here in Canada. Um, we we establish relations bilateral relations with China more than you know People's Republic of China. Uh, for, we've had those for more than half a century, um, and um, well, I've experienced it myself. Uh, the, the The Canada the, the Academy of Social Sciences the, um, and the Canada Council, the, you know, various various bodies of the Canadian government, universities, a tremendous amount of exchange at the bilateral level and. Now the report's coming out from the Chinese media, which I consulted this morning, and I spoke the uh, day before yesterday, spoke with the, with, um, the correspondent of uh, People's Daily in Ottawa. Um, people in China very hurt by this uh, kind of, I mean, as far as public opinion is concerned. Um, I mean, the backlash by the Chinese government is another matter. It may not have been the right res- kind of response. Uh, but people are reacting to this because they always had a good feeling about Canadians, <laughs> to put it bluntly. And I've been to China probably a dozen times in, in the last uh, 10, 20 years. And and um, it's always been, a, you know, there have always been a tremendous, really good relations between between China and, and Canada, and this has been jeopardized uh, by by a, an action which was totally unnecessary. If the United States wants to do it, why do they have to use Canada? They, 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 they're trying to do give us the dirty work. Uh, but uh, it's uh, I think it's very important that we come out of this crisis in a way which uh, will restore a bilateral relationship with, with China, uh, which is not only, it's not only business relations, it's also cultural, social, academic, and so on.
0: Okay. Well, Professor Chostovsky, this has been a, vel- a developing story. Uh, we thank you very much, as always, for sharing your perspectives with our audience. Thank you so much. Professor Chaussodowski is an award-winning author and professor emeritus of economics at the University of Ottawa and founder and editor of Global Research. You can find more on this and other topics by visiting the site globalresearch.ca. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The U.S. extradition request of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou stemmed from fraud allegations relating to a presentation before the British multinational banking firm HSBC. The supposed fraud was using a shell company, Skycom, to conduct business dealings with Iran, a violation of U.S. sanctions. Canadian officials, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, maintain that Canada was obliged to detain Hmong according to the extradition treaty the country has signed with the U.S., Media reporting and punditry have left audiences with the impression that Canada had no choice but to comply with the request and let things play out through the legal system without political interference, and that Canada has somehow innocently been dragged into a dispute between China and the US with unfortunate repercussions for Canada's relations with both those economic giants. To what extent is Canada truly an innocent bystander in this affair? Joining us with his thoughts is Christopher Black, a member of the Law Society of Upper Canada. Christopher Black is a graduate of York University's Osgoode Hall Law School and a leading war crimes lawyer and has acted in cases in Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia, including the defense of Slobodan Milosevic. He's on the list of counsel at the International Criminal Court. He's also a frequent contributor to global research. Uh, Christopher Black, it's a pleasure to have you back on our show. Welcome.
2: Oh, thank you, and it's uh, good to be with you to talk about these issues.
0: Please correct the record for us. Uh, was the Prime Minister not obliged under the extradition treaty to at least detain Meng Wanzhou?
2: No, because the 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 laws that they accuse Ms. Meng of violating are not laws at all. They are American edicts, basically, to the world that you can't trade with Iran. and They cast them in disguise of laws, American laws, like any national laws, can only apply to the country and the citizens of that country. They can only apply to Americans committing crimes inside America. But they purport to tell the world that we, we've made a law, and everybody in the world has to obey this law. That's not how law works. It can't work that way. They're not a world government. They don't control the world, although they would like to. So, And those the laws they passed are not legal even in the United States because... Uh, it's an, a violation of international law for any unilateral sanctions or trade embargoes to be imposed by one nation on another. Only the Security Council has the authority to impose sanctions or economic embargoes on a nation and then the other nations of the world have to are obliged to follow that, that rule. Hmm. The unilateral sanctions are not legal. They can't be imposed. they're a violation of the UN Charter of international Law. So those laws are not valid don't exist. There's nothing that she's violating. Secondly, Canada itself has no sanctions uh, of that type that they're using, in this case, against Iran. So the extradition treaties, extradition requests can only be followed if the crime alleged is also a crime in Canada. Now, they're using the word fraud, so there's a fraud in Canada or a fraud in the United States, but that's just a guise, the essence of the crime is that she's violating these sanctions. There are no such sanctions by Canada against Iran of that nature. And uh, thirdly, the extradition treaty stipulates that when a country makes a request, the requested country, like Canada in this case, has to consider whether it's a political, politically motivated, even if the charges are valid. And it's quite clear these charges are politically motivated, since Trump now let the cat out of the bag and said that, you know, uh, I can uh, maybe let her go or keep her, depending on how the Chinese uh, bend my way on trade deals. So as part of his trade war, she's a hostage. And they knew that when they got the request. So what they should have done was tell the Americans, we're not going to arrest her or detain her. The laws you're applying are not, we're not obliged to follow them. And they should have sent a warning to China and to her that the Americans were pressuring them to detain her in Canada and say, you know what, we may be forced to, so don't come through Canada. They should have at least done that. But they didn't have the even the moral turpitude to do that. Hmm. So no, it's not legal at all what they didn't they were not required to detain her at all.
0: Well now China is being accused in this country of embracing bully tactics by detaining Canadians in China, namely former diplomat Michael Kovrig and Calgary born entrepreneur Michael Spaver. Now they say two wrongs don't make a right. Was there any legal justification for those specific arrests?
2: Well, we don't know. I mean, there's, uh, the Chinese say they are detained on espionage charges, basically. And we don't know if those charges are valid or not. However, the, I- the International Crisis Group, Michael Kovrig, was in China operating as a member of that group, and it didn't have a license to operate. And they put out a statement that he was there to gather intelligence, to interview Chinese officials, to gather information. The International Crisis Group is a Western-based intelligence organization. It's financed by NATO countries. Forty-five percent of its money comes from NATO governments. It comes from the Rockefeller Group. George Soros was one of the founders. All its board of members are former foreign ministers of all the NATO countries, or deputy foreign ministers, or other high mucky mucks of the American, British, and Norwegian, and Canadian governments. It was created a few years ago to put out policy papers and gather intelligence acting ba- both as a spy agency and as a propaganda organization, putting out papers telling the world what, exactly what they want and how they want, how they want things to develop in a certain region. And that's what they do. So I'm not surprised that they've chosen Kovrig because it hits a Canadian because he's a Canadian diplomat seconded to the ICG. And uh, the ICG is basically an American CIA-connected organization. So they hit... Both countries. Now, the Chinese have not said this in connection with what happened to Meng. But the timing is uh, more than coincidental, probably.
0: Well, yeah, that's an imp- interesting point about the timing because if there was legal justification for going after them, uh, why not arrest them months ago?
2: True. And, well, maybe they're waiting just to do the jump on it if they have to. Who knows? I don't know because the Chinese aren't saying either. And it may not be connected. The Chinese may be doing other things to get back to Canada for what they've done. The Chinese uh, news, or the press, basically in the editorials, like the China Daily, are saying that uh, China wants this all smoothed over. They want business to go on and carry on as usual. And they're going to be careful how they respond. Although there's been boycotts developing inside China. Mm-hmm. And trade relations have obviously cooled. So I would say that you, we can guess that the two arrests of uh, these two fellows, who both of whom who know each other, apparently, um, it may be that they were aware of these, what these guys were doing, if the allegations are true, for a long time. It decided to move now on them because it was convenient to use them, though. So. But we shouldn't be surprised when uh, Miss Meng's been kidnapped and detained and held as a hostage in Canada.
0: Well, now this... Uh... The, the extradition uh, request, or the arrest, took place on December 1st, uh, coinciding with when President Trump was having dinner with uh, President uh, Xi Jinping. Right. And, you know, there, there's been, I know of uh, at least one analyst who's suggesting that, uh, you know, Trump may not have been in the loop yeah. about this uh, whole thing. But uh, apparently, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, was informed in advance, and uh, uh, John Bolton. Uh, had made statements to the effect that they'd been informed in advance. So, I mean, w- what is your take on uh, the, the 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 motivation of, of the president? And to what extent was he uh, in the know, or was, is this something that's uh, disturbing uh, what had been up to that point uh, apparent progress in trade talks with China?
2: Yeah, I, I've heard some commentators say the, these things, but I think it's quite clear it fits in with Trump's whole uh Anti-hostility towards China since he's come into office. I mean, they've increased the military pressure against them constantly, and they're now trading with, doing things with Taiwan they shouldn't be doing, which is violating Chinese sovereignty. Uh, he's imposed all these in tariffs and upset the Chinese and made, started to crater their economy a little bit, and. Uh, Okay, there was a brief lull of G20. They may said they could maybe get some accommodation, but it hasn't come. Instead, they arrested Miss Meng. Hmm. So I don't. The idea that President Trump did, was not in the loop on this is, I think, absurd. It, I've seen, it usually comes from a lot of American writers or commentators who seem to think that their governments are in complete chaos, and that presidents can be excused from decisions because they didn't have. Any, they don't know what they're doing. They're out to lunch all the time. Hmm. The governments don't work that way not big power governments don't work that way. This is not the Grand Duchy of Fenwick. I mean, and it's quite clear that if Bolton knew, which is chief advisor, Trump must know. If Trudeau knew, Trump must know, because the request comes for extradition comes from the State Department. So it comes from the Secretary of State. So the Secretary of State has to be talking to the president every day. They know. And that then is sent to the foreign ministry in Canada. So it goes up to the cabinet. These people know it. They can't say they didn't know. I mean, it's just impossible. It's not the way the, the, the communications work or the structure works. Hmm. So, no, I don't buy that. And, and Trump actually said a few days after she was arrested that, well, you know, we could use her. Fact, maybe let her go if China does what I want. And so it's quite clear that she was picked up to be held as a hostage. and He knew about it and proves it. And he proves that he hasn't denounced it. Hmm. So I don't think that has any water that, that idea.
0: Well, what, uh, what is the point of uh, detaining Canadian officials and not American officials, if America seems to be the, the main driving force of this uh, whole thing?
2: Well, that's an interesting point. Perhaps the Chinese want to apply pressure with the weakest link, which is Canada. Um, and maybe, I'm sure, Canada, China would like uh, Canada to come more its way, so maybe they can apply some pressure. Who knows? I have no idea what the Chinese are up to. Okay. Um,
0: well, and speculate only. Yeah. Well, in terms of like le- the legal precedents here, or otherwise, what, what, what precedent is being set by Canada's actions in this case uh, for for others either residing in or visiting Canada?
2: Well, if I was a Chinese businessman, I I would I would hesitate coming to Canada right now because you don't know if your name is on a list. If you've done if you belong to any company or has any connection with any company, and your company somehow down the line has done some trade with Iran, you might be in trouble. Or whoever else the Americans have sanctions against somewhere. Um, I would be very careful coming here, passing through here. Hmm. So I think it's going to be a big. And the Chinese have said there's going to be severe consequences if she's not released. She's still detained, basically. I mean, under harsh conditions, really. I mean, 10 million dollars bail. I don't even see that murder cases and all this tight security. Where's she going to go? Escape in a Chinese submarine? I don't understand this. But. Um, She's basically detained, and it's insulting, and it's a woman. I mean, they've detained, a not kidnapped a man, they've done it to a woman. I mean, it's really insulting in China. People are angry.
0: Indeed. What about the larger ramifications? I mean, not just Chinese, but, for example, I know people who came across the border uh, during the Iraq War, uh, conscientious resistors who refused to right. serve in that war, uh, who might be facing uh, uh, you know, penalties for, for yeah. desertion. Could there potentially be uh, consequences for them or, or others? Uh?
2: Well, yeah, but it shows that Canada is, is very compliant now with American requests. So, I mean, there's still people up here from I guess I guess they all got amnesty for the Vietnam War, but maybe not everybody. But who? Yeah, Canada has not been as welcoming to American deserters or or people dodging military service as they were in the Vietnam period, uh, it's harder now. Mm. But, uh, it sends a message that you wouldn't, if, if you're coming here as a refugee, you can't trust what Canada will do with you. Yeah, And especially since Canada is, is an essential part of the Five Eyes network of NATO, it's it, it, it's part of the NATO war machine. And so if you've come from any conflict involving NATO, I mean, Canada is not the best place for you.
0: So as long as Canada is part of NATO and Five Eyes, I mean, forget about sovereignty.
2: Basically, yeah. I mean, although it's it's a willing it seems to be a willing surrender to our sovereignty by the financial elites that run this country. They feel more friend They feel they have more in common with New York and Chicago and Washington than they do with the rest of rest of us.
0: Chris, I think we'll have to leave it there. But okay. I, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been a privilege having you back on the show. I hope we can have you back in the not too distant future.
2: All right. Great. Thank you very much for having
0: me. Okay. We've been speaking with international criminal lawyer Christopher Black. He's the author of a number of essays on international law, politics, and world events, especially for the online magazine New Eastern Outlook. He's also a frequent contributor to Global Research, where you can find two of his articles on the Meng Wanzhou affair. He joined us from Toronto. Mm -hmm. Theoretical physicist by training, Ron Unz, serves as founder and chairman of uns.org, unz.org, a content archiving website providing free access to many hundreds of thousands of articles from prominent periodicals of the last 150 years. These articles provide alternative perspectives ignored by mainstream media. Ron recently authored an article averting world conflict with China, which outlines an Achilles' heel in the campaign against China, which the People's Republic could exploit, that he believes would force the U.S. and its allies to back away. He joins us now from Palo Alto, California. Welcome, Mr. Unz.
3: Great to be here.
0: Maybe you should tell us first off uh, about the forces and players, as you see it, that are are driving the, the current enmity that's growing between China and the U.S.,
3: Well, I mean, there are probably a number of different factors, but I think the dominant factor in the current um, conflict over the CFO of Huawei is really America's entirely unreasonable approach to trying to demonize and um, pretty much ban all trade with Iran. And that particular effort seems almost entirely based on on the tremendous lobbying power of what might be called the Israel lobby in the United States. Since Israel is a regional rival of Iran, and it would benefit if Iran were crippled or forced to, for example, exit its support for Syria or Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, there's an effort by Israel's strongest committed partisans in the United States to try to inflict tremendous economic damage on Iran, and one way of doing it is basically to ban all these various companies around the world, companies that really have no deep connection with the United States, to uh, boycott Iran the way America does.
0: I think the United States has always uh, had that uh, somewhat uh, favorable bias towards Israel. I'm wondering if if there's anything in particular about the Trump administration that uh, would seem to even uh, further or or, or lift that uh, close association with Israel, uh, a propane level or two. Well, it seems
3: to have been increasing steadily over the last 20 or 25 years. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, a lot of America's involvement in the Middle East following the 9-11 attacks was certainly due to the uh, tremendously influential neocons in the George W. Bush administration. And then other partisans of Israel ended up being very influential in the Obama administration and now in the Trump administration. So even as America's presidency shifts back and forth between Democrats and Republicans, it seems every cycle you have tremendous support, sometimes increased support, for a foreign policy essentially geared towards the interests of a foreign nation, you know, Israel in the Middle East. But, I mean, if we're talking about this particular action and the influence that the uh, sort of the Israel lobby has on the Republican side of the aisle, one very, very central figure is one of the wealthiest men in the United States, and that's somebody called Sheldon Adelson. He's a casino multi-billionaire. I think his fortune is something like $40 billion. He's the largest single donor to the Republicans. He was the largest single donor to the Trump campaign. And in fact, I mean, some of the things going on are really absurd. uh, I, I think in 2016, or in fact, it might have even been as early as 2015, you had every major Republican presidential candidate going to Las Vegas to kiss Sheldon Adelson's ring and basically pledge their loyalty in whatever areas he would command. And he's made it very clear over and over again that he's, in effect, a one-issue campaign donor. And his one issue is the interests of the state of Israel. And uh, ironically enough, he's also one of the most powerful figures. He's uh, an American. He's Jewish-American. But he's one of the most powerful figures in Israel as well, since he owns the largest Israeli newspaper and he's been one of the most influential figures in Israeli politics as well. So, you know, we're talking about the same single individual having an enormous influence in both the American Republican Party and in the Israeli government. And, you know, a lot of that has been directed very strongly towards hostility towards Iran. In fact, Adelson's quite elderly. I think he's eighty five, but a few years ago he actually said that America should detonate a nuclear weapon in Iran in a uh, part of the Iranian desert just to basically show the Iranians who was boss and that they had to do whatever
0: the Israeli
3: lobby the American government said, so you know he 's made some very extreme statements over the years, and this effort to enforce a unilateral boycott and sanction economic sanctions against Iran not only on the part of America and American corporations, but on the part of all major foreign corporations as well, is certainly something that he's been very actively supportive on over the years.
0: Um, And you see basically he's sort of like a a puppeteer, in other words. Exactly. Um, I I just wanted to uh, mention another uh, character or player in this drama, National Security Advisor John Bolton, who's notorious for his... uh, uh warlike views uh, very uh uh you know agitated for the war in iraq a very strong uh israel supporter um and 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 he it was he who was personally given the green light to uh to for the arrest of Meng, uh Wanzhou. zhao um could, could you talk a little bit about like what what his role is in all of this and uh you know how you know the the extent to which he seems to be Uh, driving this, uh, this policy.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the key thing about it is Bolton has been one of the most extreme and fanatic neocons and Israel supporters, probably going back at least 20 years or more. And he actually, he's not Jewish himself, but he's very, very closely tied in with the inner circles of the most extreme elements of the Israel lobby. And as it is, Sheldon Adelson is his patron. I mean, has been his longtime patron. And, in fact, there are widespread supports when Donald Trump took the step of naming Bolton, his national security advisor, which shocked and dismayed a lot of people, that that action was taken directly at the behest of Sheldon Adelson. In other words, Adelson strong-armed Trump to put Adelson's man, John Bolton, in his top national security advisor. And uh, the thing that really shocked a lot of people is that when Trump was running for the presidency, one reason he attracted a lot of attention and support was his renunciation of the policies of the neocons. I mean, uh, at one of the key debates in the Republican primaries, he outright denounced George W. Bush and the neocons and the Iraq War as being an utter disaster for the United States. And he seemed to provide strong indications that he would follow a very different path as president. But once he came into office, you know, gradually, within a matter of a few months, many of the people who'd been hoping for that were tremendously disappointed and saw him put in place more and more figures from the neocon wing of the Republican Party so that, you know, these days, in some respects, not all respects, but in some respects, Trump's foreign policy line is shifting back more and more towards what it might have been under George W. Bush or one of the Republicans that Trump was running against in the primaries. Now, you know, again, there are exceptions. For example, I was quite heartened to hear that Trump's thinking, in fact, probably is planning to pull American troops out of Syria, though. Trump has gone back and forth enough times that it's very difficult to tell whether he'll actually follow up on that, hmm. or whether he'll be pushed back into the neocon position.
0: Now, you you do state in your article that uh, if Adelson, who we just were speaking about, placed a single phone call to the White House, the the Trump administration would order Canada to release Miss Hmong that same day. Uh, so, speaking to the uh, the, the you know the, the level of influence he seems to have, what could potentially push Adelson to uh, breaking with his uh, you know, devoted stance toward the Israeli state?
3: Well, I mean, that, that's really the key point. When you're looking at what's going on, uh, Ms. Monk is being charged with having been involved in violations of the Iran sanctions, economic sanctions that America put into place. That's what she's being charged with, with her arrest warrant in the United States. So that whole set of policies is almost directly a consequence of Sheldon Adelson's lobbying over the last 10 or 20 years. In other words, that's the reason we have these policies against Iran. And so, you know, while I doubt that Adelson was at all directly connected with her arrest, I mean, he's 85 years old, and he's not probably that hands-on. He's the person who put in place the policies that set this up, who put John Bolton in as National Security Advisor. And so given his enormous financial influence on those things, I think there's a very good chance he could basically place a phone call and suddenly she would be allowed to go free, which you know, is really just an unreasonable action that America took. Now, Adel, the interesting thing about the situation is that when you're looking at what's going on, I mean, you know, China, for example, has been retaliating from what I've read in the newspapers and detaining two or three fairly obscure Canadian individuals who were in China at the time in retaliation against uh, Canada's seizure of you know, that executive while she was switching planes at a Canadian airport. But, I mean, Canada really is not the key player in this. I mean, the point I'd make is that Canada is acting more as a puppet of the United States in ordering her arrest. Now... I think you can similarly make the case that the American government is to some extent a puppet in the hands of Sheldon Adelson and the people around him because of the tremendous financial influence they have on these matters, the money they've donated. And so it seems to me that when you're trying to change what's happening, targeting retaliation against a puppet or against a puppet's puppet is probably less effective than going after the puppet master. And someone like Sheldon Adelson, with his $40 billion fortune and his control over American-Iranian policy, is probably the closest thing to a puppet master we have in this situation. And interestingly enough, Sheldon Adelson is directly vulnerable to Chinese retaliation. It's simply that the basis of Sheldon Adelson's entire fortune is his ownership of gambling casinos, extremely lucrative gambling casinos, in Macau, which is part of China. In other words, Sheldon Adelson's entire fortune is subject to control by the Chinese government. China could basically take retaliatory action against his gambling casinos based on the numerous historical cases of corruption and bribery that they've been involved in. And that would suddenly show Adelson the tremendous risks he's taking by, taking by supporting these actions against the Chinese government. In other words, you know, as the way I've put it, I think, in my piece, if the Chinese government simply temporarily shut down Adelson's casinos, which they have every right to do, those casinos are based in China, and they have a very sordid legal record, if they shut them down... I think within 24 hours, Adelson's stock price would fall enough that his personal fortune would decline by probably 5 or $10 billion, and that would be enough to get his attention. In fact, if China simply privately sent word to Adelson that the continued detention of that Chinese executive in Canada was raising great risks about his casinos remaining open, I think then he would very quietly ensure that she was released. I mean, the way I put it in my piece is, China already, currently, has its hands around the financial windpipe of the individual ultimately responsible for Miss Meng's detention. And if they simply squeeze a little bit, I think she'll be very quickly put on a flight back home. And along with guarantees that nothing like that take place in the future.
0: That is a fascinating uh, uh, point to raise, and uh, I wish we had more time, but uh, I want to thank you very much for sharing it with our audience, and uh, we'll look forward to more of your writing in the coming weeks and months. Well, thanks for having me. That was Ron Unz, Editor-in-Chief and Publisher of the Unz Review. You can find his article, Averting World Conflict with China, at the site unz.com. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Next week, we'll air special holiday programming. Regular programming will resume in early January with a special review of the past year. My name is Michael Welch. Season's greetings and talk again in 2019.